Section 5 of Signs of Change by William Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Brabin. The Hopes of Civilization, Part 1. Every age has had its hopes, hopes that look to something beyond the life of the age itself, hopes that try to pierce into the future. And strange to say, I believe that those hopes have been stronger not in the heyday of the epoch which has given them birth, but rather in its decadence and times of corruption. In sober truth it may well be that these hopes are but a reflection in those that live happily and comfortably of the vain longings of those others who suffer with little power of expressing their sufferings in an audible voice. When all goes well, the happy world forgets these people and their desires, sure as it is that their woes are not dangerous to them, the wealthy. Whereas when the woes and grief of the poor begin to rise to a point beyond the endurance of men, fear, conscious or unconscious, falls upon the rich, and they begin to look about them to see what there may be among the elements of their society which may be used as palliatives for the misery which, long existing and ever growing greater among the slaves of that society, is now at last forcing itself on the attention of the masters. Times of change, disruption and revolution are naturally times of hope also, and not seldom the hopes of something better to come are the first tokens that tell people that revolution is at hand, though commonly such tokens are no more believed than Cassandra's prophecies, or are even taken in a contrary sense by those who have anything to lose, since they look upon them as signs of the prosperity of the times and the long endurance of that state of things which is so kind to them. Let us then see what the hopes of civilization are like today, for indeed I purpose speaking of our own times chiefly, and will leave for the present all mention of that older civilization which was destroyed by the healthy barbarism out of which our present society has grown. Yet a few words may be necessary concerning the birth of our present epoch and the hopes it gave rise to, and what has become of them. That will not take us very far back in history. As to my mind, our modern civilization begins with the stirring period about the time of the Reformation in England the time which in the then more important countries of the continent is known as the period of the Renaissance, the so-called new birth of art and learning. And first remember that this period includes the death throes of feudalism, with all the good and evil which that system bore with it. For centuries past its end was getting ready, by the gradual weakening of the bonds of the great hierarchy which held men together. The characteristics of those bonds were, theoretically at least, personal rights and personal duties between superior and inferior all down the scale. Each man was born, so to say, subject to these conditions, and the mere accidents of his life could not free him from them. Commerce, in our sense of the word there was none, capitalistic manufacture, capitalistic exchange, was unknown. To buy goods cheap that you might sell them dear was a legal offence, forestalling. To buy goods in the market in the morning and to sell them in the afternoon in the same place was not thought a useful occupation, and was forbidden under the name of regrating. Usury, instead of leading as now directly to the highest offices of the state, was thought wrong, and the profit of it mostly fell to the chosen people of God. The robbery of the workers, thought necessary then as now to the very existence of the state, was carried out quite crudely, without any concealment or excuse, by arbitrary taxation or open violence. On the other hand, life was easy, and common necessaries plenteous. The holidays of the church were holidays in the modern sense of the word, downright play days, and there were ninety-six obligatory ones. Nor were the people tame and sheep-like, but as rough-handed and bold a set of good fellows as ever rubbed through life under the sun. I remember three passages from contemporary history or gossip about the life of those times which luck has left us, and which illustrate curiously the change that has taken place in the habits of Englishmen. 
A lady writing from Norfolk 400 years ago to her husband in London, amidst various commissions for tapestries, groceries and gowns, bids him also not to forget to bring back with him a good supply of crossbows and bolts, since the windows of their hall were too low to be handy for longbow shooting. A German traveller, writing quite at the end of the medieval period, speaks of the English as the laziest and proudest people and the best cooks in Europe. A Spanish ambassador about the same period says, These English live in houses built of sticks and mud, but therein they fare as plenteously as lords. Indeed, I confess that it is with a strange emotion that I recall these times and try to realise the life of our forefathers. Men who were named like ourselves, spoke nearly the same tongue, lived on the same spots of earth, and therewithal were as different from us in manners, habits, ways of life and thought as though they lived in another planet. The very face of the country has changed, not merely, I mean, in London and the great manufacturing centres, but through the country generally. There is no piece of English ground except such places as Salisbury Plain, but bears witness to the amazing change which four hundred years has brought upon us. Not seldom I please myself with trying to realise the face of medieval England, the many chases and great woods, the stretches of common tillage and common pasture quite unenclosed, the rough husbandry of the tilled parts, the unimproved breeds of cattle, sheep and swine, especially the latter, so lank and long and lathy, looking so strange to us, the strings of pack-horses along the bridle-roads, the scantiness of the wheel-roads, scarce any except those left by the Romans and those made from monastery to monastery, the scarcity of bridges, and people using ferries instead, or fords where they could. The little towns, well bechurched, often walled. The villages, just where they are now, except for those that have nothing but the church left to tell of them, but bigger and more populous. Their churches, some big and handsome, some small and curious, but all crowded with altars and furniture, and gay with pictures and ornament. The many religious houses with their glorious architecture, the beautiful manor-houses, some of them castles once, and survivals from an earlier period, some new and elegant, some out of all proportion small for the importance of their lords. How strange it would be to us if we could be landed in 14th century England, unless we saw the crest of some familiar hill, like that which yet bears upon it a symbol of an English tribe, and from which, looking down on the plain where Alfred was born, I once had many such ponderings, we should not know into what country of the world we were come. The name is left, scarce a thing else. And when I think of this, it quickens my hope of what may be. Even so it will be with us in time to come. All will have changed, and another people will be dwelling here in England, who, although they may be of our blood and bear our name, will wonder how we lived in the nineteenth century. Well, under all that rigidly ordered caste society of the fourteenth century, with its rough plenty, its sauntering life, its cool acceptance of rudeness and violence, there was going on a keen struggle of classes, which carried with it the hope of progress of those days, the serfs gradually getting freed and becoming some of them the town population, the first journeymen or free labourers so-called, some of them the copyholders of agricultural land. The corporations of the towns gathered power. The craft guilds grew into perfection and corruption. The power of the crown increased attended with nascent bureaucracy. In short, the middle class was forming underneath the outward show of feudalism still intact. And all was getting ready for the beginning of the great commercial epoch, in whose latter days I would fain hope we are living. That epoch began with the portentous change of agriculture which meant cultivating for profit instead of for livelihood, 
and which carried with it the expropriation of the people from the land, the extinction of the yeoman and the rise of the capitalist farmer, and the growth of the town population which, swelled by the drift of the landless vagabonds and masterless men, grew into a definite proletariat or class of free workmen, and their existence made that of the embryo capitalist manufacturer also possible, and the reign of commercial contract and cash payment began to take the place of the old feudal hierarchy, with its many-linked chain of personal responsibilities. The latter half of the 17th century, the reign of Charles II, saw the last blow struck at this feudal system, when the landowner's military service was abolished and they simply became owners of property that had no duties attached to it save the payment of a land tax. The hopes of the early part of the commercial period may be read in almost every book of the time, expressed in various degrees of dull or amusing pedantry, and show a naive arrogance and contempt of the times just past, which nothing but the utmost simplicity of ignorance could have attained to. But the times were stirring and gave birth to the most powerful individualities in many branches of literature, and more in Campanella, at least, from the midst of the exuberant triumph of young commercialism, gave to the world prophetic hopes of times yet to come, when that commercialism itself should have given place to the society which we hope will be the next transform of civilization into something else, into a new social life. This period of early and exuberant hopes passed into the next stage of sober realization of many of them for commerce grew and grew and moulded all society to its needs. The workman of the 16th century worked still as an individual with little cooperation and scarce any division of labour. By the end of the 17th he had become only a part of a group, which by that time was in the handicrafts the real unit of production. Division of labour even at that period had quite destroyed his individuality, and the worker was but part of a machine. All through the 18th century this system went on progressing towards perfection, till to most men of that period, to most of those who were in any way capable of expressing their thoughts, civilization had already reached a high stage of perfection, and was certain to go on from better to better. These hopes were not on the surface of a very revolutionary kind, but nevertheless the class struggle still went on, and quite openly too. For the remains of feudality, aided by the mere mask and grimace of the religion which was once a real part of the feudal system, hampered the progress of commerce sorely, and seemed a thousandfold more powerful than it really was, because in spite of the class struggle, there was really a covert alliance between the powerful middle classes who were the children of commerce and their old masters, the aristocracy. An unconscious understanding between them, rather, in the midst of their contest, that certain matters were to be respected even by the advanced party. The contest and civil war between the king and the commons in England in the 17th century illustrates this well. The caution with which privilege was attacked in the beginning of the struggle, the unwillingness of all the leaders save a few enthusiasts to carry matters to their logical consequences, even when the march of events had developed the antagonism between aristocratic privilege and middle-class freedom of contract, so-called. Finally, the crystallization of the new order conquered by the sword of Naseby into a mongrel condition of things between privilege and bourgeois freedom the defeat and grief of the purest republicans, and the horror at and swift extinction of the levellers, the pioneers of socialism in that day, all point to the fact that the party of progress, as we should call it now, was determined after all that privilege should not be abolished further than its own standpoint. The 17th century ended in the great Whig revolution in England, and as I said, commerce throve and grew enormously, and the power of the middle classes increased proportionately, and all seemed going smoothly with them till at last in France the culminating corruption of a society still nominally existing for the benefit of the privileged aristocracy forced their hand. 
the old order of things backed as it was by the power of the executive by that semblance of overwhelming physical force which is the real and only cement of a society founded on the slavery of the many the aristocratic power seemed strong and inexpugnable and since any stick will do to beat a dog with the middle classes in france were forced to take up the first stick that lay ready to hand if they were not to give way to the aristocrats which indeed the whole evolution of history forbade them to do therefore as in england in the seventeenth century the middle classes allied themselves to religious and republican and even communistic enthusiasts with the intention firm though unexpressed to keep them down when they had mounted to power by their means so in france they had to ally themselves with the proletariat which shamefully oppressed and degraded as it had been now for the first time in history began to feel its power the power of numbers by means of this help they triumphed over aristocratic privilege but on the other hand although the proletariat was speedily reduced again to a position not much better than that it had held before the revolution the part it played therein gave a new and terrible character to that revolution and from that time forward the class struggle entered on to a new phase the middle classes had gained a complete victory which in france carried with it all the outward signs of victory though in england they chose to consider a certain part of themselves an aristocracy who had indeed little signs of aristocracy about them either for good or for evil being in very few cases of long descent and being in their manners and ideas unmistakably bourgeois so was accomplished the second act of the great class struggle with whose first act began the age of commerce as to the hopes of this period of the revolution we all know how extravagant they were what a complete regeneration of the world was expected to result from the abolition of the grossest forms of privilege and i must say that before we mock at the extravagance of those hopes we should try to put ourselves in the place of those that held them and try to conceive how the privilege of the old noblesse must have galled the respectable well-to-do people of that time well the reasonable part of those hopes were realized by the revolution in other words it accomplished what it really aimed at the freeing of commerce from the fetters of sham feudality or in other words the destruction of aristocratic privilege the more extravagant part of the hopes expressed by the eighteenth-century revolution were vague enough and tended in the direction of supposing that the working classes would be benefited by what was to the interest of the middle class in some way quite unexplained by a kind of magic one may say which welfare of the workers as it was never directly aimed at but only hoped for by the way so also did not come about by any such magical means and the triumphant middle classes began gradually to find themselves looked upon no longer as rebellious servants but as oppressive masters the middle class had freed commerce from her fetters of privilege and had freed thought from her fetters of theology at least partially but it had not freed nor attempted to free labour from its fetters the leaders of the french revolution even amidst the fears suspicions and slaughter of the terror upheld the rights of property so called though a new pioneer or prophet appeared in france analogous in some respects to the levellers of cromwell's time but as might be expected far more advanced and reasonable than they were gracchus babeuf and his fellows were treated as criminals and died or suffered the torture of prison for attempting to put into practice those words which the republic still carried on its banners and liberty fraternity and equality were interpreted in a middle class or if you please a jesuitical sense as the rewards of success for those who could struggle into an exclusive class and at last property had to be defended by a military adventurer and the revolution seemed to have ended with napoleonism nevertheless the revolution was not dead nor was it possible to say thus far and no further to the rising tide 
commerce which had created the propertyless proletariat throughout civilization had still another part to play which is not yet played out she had and has to teach the workers to know what they are to educate them to consolidate them and not only to give them aspirations for their advancement as a class but to make means for them to realize those aspirations all this she did nor loitered in her work either from the beginning of the nineteenth century the history of civilization is really the history of the last of the class struggles which was inaugurated by the french revolution and england who all through the times of the revolution and the caesarism which followed it appeared to be the steady foe of revolution was really a steadily furthering it her natural conditions her store of coals and minerals her temperate climate extensive seaboard and many harbours and lastly her position as the outpost of europe looking into america across the ocean doomed her to be for a time at least the mistress of the commerce of the civilized world and its agent with barbarous and semi-barbarous countries the necessities of this destiny drove her into the implacable war with france a war which nominally waged on behalf of monarchical principles was really though doubtless unconsciously carried on for the possession of the foreign and colonial markets she came out victorious from that war and fully prepared to take advantage of the industrial revolution which had been going on the while and which i now ask you to note i have said that the eighteenth century perfected the system of labour which took the place of the medieval system under which a workman individually carried his piece of work all through its various stages from the first to the last this new system the first change in industrial production since the middle ages is known as the system of division of labour wherein as i said the unit of labour is a group not a man the individual workman in this system is kept lifelong at the performance of some task quite petty in itself and which he soon masters and having mastered it has nothing more to do but to go on increasing his speed of hand under the spur of competition with his fellows until he has become the perfect machine which it is his ultimate duty to become since without attaining to that end he must die or become a pauper you can well imagine how this glorious invention of division of labour this complete destruction of individuality in the workman and his apparent hopeless enslavement to his profit-grinding master stimulated the hopes of civilization probably more hymns have been sung in praise of division of labour more sermons preached about it than have done homage to the precept do unto others as ye would they should do unto you to drop all irony Surely this was one of those stages of civilization at which one might well say that, if it was to stop there, it was a pity that it had ever got so far. I have had to study books and methods of work of the 18th century a good deal, French chiefly, and I must say that the impression made on me by that study is that the 18th century artisan must have been a terrible product of civilization, and quite in a condition to give rise to hopes of the torch, the pike, and the guillotine. End of section 5